Good afternoon. Please turn your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, man, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine and did, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the, to the, the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But now you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and that his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for the introduction, Che. It's been really good, to, great, great to get to know you and your, and your family. It's been really great to get to know many of you. I know that um, um, I've gotten to meet a lot of you, some of you not yet. Um, I look forward to getting to know all of you um, in the future. In our times together, like in the various question and answer times that we've done and, and meetings that we've done together, um, a lot of words have been shared, mostly by me, I think, um, just talking a lot about uh, who I am, about my family, about our church, about our experiences, about our perspectives and outlooks and stuff like that. It's been um, encouraging to, for me to be in those meetings with, with many of you, but I've been especially looking forward to today, and it's a great, greater privilege, really, for me to be here today, because today I get to not talk about myself, not talk about my family, not talk about our church. I get to talk to you about Jesus, um, which is much better and much more exciting for me, much more interesting for you. And he is worthy um, to be spoken of. He's worthy to be sung of. He's worthy to be worshipped and prayed to. So I'm going to jump into God's word, and we're going to look at Jesus uh, this afternoon together. But before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, we pray that as we sit here together, that you would... By the power of your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our heart so that we might see your glory. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work in us by your Spirit so that we might see you and believe and have life and receive grace upon grace. It's in your name that I ask. Amen. What I'd like for us to do this afternoon is look at an incident, the incident that was just read um, to us by Caesar. It's, it's an amazing event. It's miraculous, but I think you'll agree that it's miraculous and it is, it's stupendous, but in, a, in some odd ways. It's a story of a wedding party where the, where the wine runs out and then Jesus solves the problem and the party goes on. It's straightforward and it's simple. In fact, it might strike us as a bit too simple. Because according to John, this is Jesus' first public miracle. And we might ask, why this first? Like, why not a healing, right? 
Why not a mass healing? Why not bring someone back from the dead or cast out a demon? But this, as a very first miracle of his public ministry, it's, it's impressive, no doubt, but it also seems kind of insignificant. It could strike us as a, as a bit mundane. In fact, if you were to look back through the Old Testament, I think you'll find miracles there that, at least on the surface, are a lot more impressive than this one. You've got seas parting. You've got children being brought back from the dead. You've got fire descending from the sky. So when Jesus appears here on the scene, he's beginning his ministry, you'd expect him to do something bigger. For a bigger crowd, at least. What I I hope we'll see is that uh, it makes a lot of sense for Jesus to start where he does. It makes perfect sense for him to start with this particular miracle. And it makes perfect sense for John, in his account of Jesus' life, to start here too. Because for one thing, it shows us that Jesus' power, sometimes it's revealed in ways that seem unintuitive to us. He reveals his power in ways that don't always correspond with what we might think is impressive or what, with what we might think is awesome or spectacular. And I think that's worth us considering. But beyond that, what happens in the story, it gives us some really vital insight into the identity of Jesus. It tells us some things we need to know about who he is and about how he operates. You know, Throughout his gospel, John gives us seven miracles performed by Jesus. Or six, depending on how you count them. John doesn't call them miracles, he actually calls them signs. And he's selective about the ones that he shares. Look at what John says in chapter 20, towards the end of his gospel. John 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So you see the purpose for why why John shares these miracles with us in the first place? It's so that we would believe. And, And if we already believe, it's so that we would believe again. So that we would believe more deeply. So that we would believe in the midst of whatever we're facing presently in our lives, in our relationships. And thereby, as we believe, experience life, real life, in Jesus' name. In verse 11, the very last verse of this section that we're focusing on today, John says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see what happened after Jesus turns water into wine and all of this goes down? His disciples see him in a new light. Their faith is deepened. Their disbelief grows weaker. Their trust grows stronger. And that's why I would like us to look at this sign today. It's it's a part of scripture that's been very influential for me, very helpful for me over the years. And I hope it is for you too. I want us to see the glory of Jesus and believe in him either for the first time or for the thousandth time, so that that the beauty and the power and the character of who Christ is would get bigger to us 
so that it would, it would floor us and impress us and, and transform us because it has the power to do that. So, so how do we see the glory of Jesus in this event? Three ways I want to share with you that Jesus displays his glory here. One, Jesus honors his friends and he removes their shame. Two, Jesus replaces ritual with real blessing. And then thirdly, Jesus welcomes people like us into marriage. So so the first thing I want us to see, Jesus honors his friends and he removes their shame. So Jesus is at this wedding feast in a small town named Cana. He's there with his disciples, probably five disciples at this point. I mean, we're guessing, we're, we're, we're speculating a little bit, but earlier in John, Jesus meets Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, those five guys. So it's very likely that those five men are with Jesus at this wedding now. And by the way, they had just met him, right? They were just starting to form a relationship with this man, Christ. So Jesus is there, not only with his new group of followers, but he's there with his mother as well. And the scene is festive. It's a wedding, after all. And weddings would have run as long as seven days. Think about that. Seven days of food and wine and music and celebration. This culture knew how to celebrate marriage. But in the middle of all those festivities, the unthinkable happens. The wine runs out. And, and this is actually a bigger deal than what we might think it is. It's not just an inconvenience. You see, in this ancient culture, it's the groom's responsibility to provide enough food and wine for the entire feast. It's his job to do that. In fact, guests would have felt entitled to it. Entitled to enough food and enough wine. So entitled, in fact, that if you run out, you're going to face extreme embarrassment. This was, a, this was a shame culture. Maybe some of us are familiar with that, so that kind of culture. Maybe some of us aren't. But running out of food and drink, meant, it meant losing face. It means losing status and reputation. Look, it, it might have even meant facing litigation. Guests could sue. They're showing up. They're bringing gifts. And they're not getting food and wine in return or not enough. You could end up in court. There's evidence that that happened in some cases. Imagine that. It, it, it might dissuade you from inviting attorneys to your wedding, for instance, if you knew that they could sue you if they don't have a good enough time. The mother of Jesus knows what's going on here. She knows that the wine ran out. It's not public knowledge, it seems, but she knows, and, and she tells her son. And look at his response Look at his response in in John 2, verses 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's an odd response, isn't it? Isn't that a surprising response? From anyone it's surprising, but especially from Jesus Christ. Woman, just, just the fact that he's calling his mom woman seems a little odd, doesn't it? You know, some Bible translations, some Bible translators have, have done their best to try and like soften Jesus' words a little bit. One, one translation puts it this way, dear woman. Another one says, dear lady. It sounds very polite, a little overly formal, to, you know, but polite nevertheless. Like it's a term of endearment. But it's not. The fact is that most 
sons don't call their mom woman, and it wasn't a common way to address your mom, even in first century Galilee. It's, it's definitely not offensive. It's not that Jesus is disrespecting his mother here, but it's odd and it's abrupt, and that really matters. When I was, uh, when I was in the fourth grade, I remember being at my friend Todd's house. Todd lived up the street. We were there for one reason, hanging out in his kitchen. His mom comes in, interrupts Todd's conversation with me, and um, Todd looks up at his mom from the table and tells her to shut up. Now, I'm sitting there. Yeah, that's what I'm sitting in the kitchen next to him, and I'm thinking, what just happened here? I'm thinking Todd's going to get murdered in, in my very presence in his kitchen. I can't imagine saying such a thing to my mom. She looks at him, gives him kind of an angry glare, and then walks out of the room. And he goes back to the conversation. And I'm thinking, I can't Im- what just happened here? In what world do you tell your mom to shut up? And she walks out of the room. I was amazed. Apparently to Todd, it was normal to talk to his mom that way. Some kind of alternate reality where it's possible to address your parents like that. I, he was very different from my other friend, Pablo, who Pablo... Um, Pablo's dad was an idiosyncratic guy, but um, also had a short temper. And I remember once sitting in Pablo's kitchen as well while his dad was mixing a drink for himself at the, at the counter. And he accidentally broke the glass. And Pablo, for some reason, instinctively started to laugh. And his dad got immediately very angry, overly angry, turns around and says, you think that's funny? He grabs an he grabs a, a ice cube that spilled out on the counter he says, you think that's funny? And he, he whips this ice cube at Pablo's head. Almost hit me, but it hit Pablo over his eye. And it left a cut over his eye, and Pablo starts crying. It was a terrible scene. It was an abusive, like, off the, like, just flew off the handle kind of scene. Pablo laughed at his dad and got lashed out at. I am not endorsing either of these parenting styles. I'm not trying to deal in kind of cultural stereotypes either. But, but I, I do want to point out that in ancient Palestinian culture, it was n- they were not very liberal about this sort of thing. One does not address his or her mom disrespectfully. And Jesus was not doing that. Jesus, the perfect son, he certainly honors his mom. But what he says is still surprising. She's making a request of him at least an indirect request, that he would do something about this problem. And he's saying, woman, this has nothing to do with me. And then to make things weirder, after all that, he still goes ahead and he solves the problem. What's, what's going on in this scene? It's, is, he, is he just giving in to Mary's nagging? I think as a son or a daughter, maybe you can relate to that. But it's not what's happening here. It's not that Mary's nagging him and Jesus just caves and says, all right, I'll do it. What he is doing, though, here, in a sense, is he seems to be distancing himself from his mom, even by just calling him her woman. And, and here's why I think he's doing this, and I'm not alone. A lot of commentators think he's doing this, and here's why it matters. Jesus is going to act. He is going to take measures to fix this problem at this party. He's going to do it miraculously. But he wants, he's making it clear to us why he acts. You see, he doesn't act out of obligation to his mother, but he acts out of love for his friends. You see, Mary's status as his mother doesn't entitle her to to, to make such a request from him. 
in a sense, her status as mother doesn't really matter here. When it comes to asking him for something like this, she is, according to Jesus, just woman. Just like his earthly father, Joseph, was just a man. Look, Jesus acts on Mary's request by sheer grace. It's not some kind of filial duty. It's not an obligation to your mother or to an elder. It's by grace. It's out of love. And this tells us something very important about this man, Jesus. It tells us that physical and biological relationships don't get people anywhere with him. You see, with Jesus, it's another kind of relationship that matters. There's this account in Mark chapter 3. It's fascinating. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, and his disciples come to him to, to call him and kind of take him away from that crowd. Look what it says. It says, A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus values those who by grace have become his friends and his family. Those who have faith in him have done the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father but that we would believe in Jesus? And this is really good news for us. It's good news for all of us. Because it means that our social status, our ethnic background, our family ties, they are irrelevant to God. They don't get us in with Jesus, but they also don't block us from Jesus. They don't alienate us from him either. You see, Jesus does in fact act on Mary's request, but not because of her status as mom, but because of her faith, because of her status as his friend, as his disciple. And beyond that, he acts out of love for all of his other disciples who are sitting there at the, at the table with him. And beyond that, he acts out of compassion for the host of this party, this, this, his friend, this poor groom. And he asks on behalf of all the people who are present there at that party. You see, you see the character of Jesus there? He honors his friends. He, he bestows grace upon them. He goes out of his way to serve them by sheer grace. It, his, he honors their requests. He meets their needs. And he even removes their shame. Think about the, the poor guy at this party. He's, uh, he failed to meet his social responsibilities. There's no way around it. Maybe he didn't have enough money to buy enough wine. Or maybe he, didn't just, he just didn't plan well enough. That's possible too. But either way, at the end of the day, he was unable to live up of, to what was required of him. And as a result, now he's standing there about to face humiliation, about to face censure, alienation from his community. Think about it. What, what a way to start a marriage, right? Imagine what his new bride would think of him. Not to mention the entire city. What would they think of him and his bride as a couple? He is a failure. But Jesus honors him. Jesus provides what he could not. In fact, he provides better wine than this young man could have ever come up with. And what does this do for the groom's reputation? It salvages it. It rescues it. In fact, it improves his reputation. It improves his status. 
in the community, there, there's a very clear kind of application of this that I, I want us to see. Um, we are the groom, you and I. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all failed to live up to what is required of us. And we failed miserably. We failed right from the start, just as this young man was failing right on the first day of his marriage, and he was going to continue to fail, just as we have continued to fail over the course of our lives. And that means that it's your relationship to Jesus that matters. It's friendship with him that matters. Nothing else. This also means that we don't have to be afraid to admit our failures. We don't have to admit, we don't have to be fearful of admitting our failures to to Jesus. And really, not even to each other. This means that we don't have to keep up appearances and pretend that we have it all together. Because Jesus befriends and he honors those who don't have it all together. The groom didn't. Jesus honors him. Jesus rescues him from the mess that he's made. And this is what Jesus continues to do for all of his friends. I think that for some of us, our sin and our failures, they can fill us with shame. Shame before other people and even shame before God himself so that we try to cover up those sins and those failures. We, we scramble to make up for our shortcomings. We work hard to get other people and God himself to say, well done. Clearly, you have it together. Clearly, you've got your life and all of this under control. Like as if Jesus were a guest at our party and we just need to impress him. And all the while, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus knows that we're failures. He knows that you're a mess. Husbands, he knows that you're not loving your wife like he loves the church. He's not deluded or deceived about that. If you're a parent, he, he knows that he knows about your sins toward your kids. Your imperfect parenting, he knows about your failures in those relationships. Whoever you are, he knows that if there's a facade that you have it all together, that facade at best is thin and it's fragile. And Jesus is willing to step into the midst of the messes that you've made and rescue from them and honor you with his presence and with his help and remove that shame. So that, look, that means that when we confess our sins, when we open up about our inadequacies, it actually glorifies him. And it leads to our good. Look, how is Jesus... How does this glory revealed to the disciples here in the story? It's as they're given this opportunity to see his gracious response to the failures of this young, unorganized, unprepared couple. So so really, we rob Jesus of glory when we hide our failure and we pretend that we have it all under control. In fact, we make it harder for other people to admit their brokenness when we try to keep up appearances ourselves. But when we confess our sinfulness, what does it do? It highlights the grace and the glory of Christ, who does not distance himself from us in our brokenness, but he draws close to us and he honors us. It highlights his grace and his glory. 
And it helps others to see that grace, see that grace. And it helps others to admit their own brokenness too. We're doing no one any good, not ourselves, not others. And we're stealing glory from Christ when we are unwilling to own our brokenness and confess it. Jesus shows us that we don't have to impress him. You see, he is clearly the only impressive one at this party. (laughs) And he says, you're with me. You're my friend by faith. So, So own your failures. I say this to myself, and I say it to you. Own your failures and your inadequacies and your sins. He won't reject you. He won't shame you. In fact, he'll rescue you, and he'll honor you. Second thing, second way that Jesus shows his glory here, he replaces ritual with real blessing. He replaces ritual with real blessing. Thank you so much for the honor. The wine runs out, and Jesus makes wine that's way better than what the party started with. It even surprises the master of the feast. The guy who's kind of running things that day. He says, you've saved the best wine till now. He says that to the groom, by the way. The groom who hadn't bought enough wine. And I've often wondered how the groom responded to that. Like, what does the groom say? Does he, does he just break down and, and cry? Does he, what does he do? Does he just play it off? Well, you know me, no big deal. I like to treat my guests well, you know. Does he pass out? I don't know what happens. But, but look at how Jesus supplies the wine to keep this party going. Look at how he does it. There are these six big stone water jars, right? 20 to 30 gallons each. And they're not meant to be filled with wine. They're, they're not meant to be filled with drinking water even. They're meant to be used in these religious purification rites. As people came into the party, they would wash their hands. In fact, people would wash their arms. They would wash utensils and bowls in this water before they got to the business of eating and cooking and all of that. It was a reminder to them that they were unclean. God is holy. God is pure. In order for you to approach him, you need cleansing. That's what they were being reminded of. Every time they came in and washed. And by the way, this ritual, it seems that it wasn't really given to them by God. It seems from places like Matthew 15 and Mark 7 that this, this washing thing was something that the elders, that the, the, the religious leaders had kind of come up with over the years. It wasn't even from God. But Jesus takes these vessels and for, for cleansing people and he turns them into something else altogether. And this is really shocking. In fact, it's scandalous, really. It seems really scandalous when we think about it. He's taking this reminder of everyone's impurity, everyone's filth, and he's replacing it with wine, the the symbol of abundant blessing, you see. Listen to this. This is from Joel 3.18. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. Prophet Joel says. Listen to what the prophet Amos says, something very similar to that in Amos 9, 13. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. You see, these verses and, and many others like them in the Old Testament, they speak of a day 
when God's kingdom finally arrives. Throughout the Old Testament, wine is often the sign that things are good. (laughs) It's the sign that all is well. It often means happiness. It means abundance. And, And ultimately, it points to the true happiness and the true abundance that will come when God makes all things new, meets every need, dries every tear, corrects every wrong, and brings justice from coast to coast. When his plan to to, to restore fallen humanity and this fallen world is is finally fulfilled, that's when the wine comes. So look, Jesus is keeping the party going here, but he's doing more than that. At the same time, he's announcing that God's kingdom, with all of its abundance of joy, it's coming. God's kingdom is entering into their world, right in the middle of that country wedding. Have you ever noticed how the Bible talks a lot about food? More specifically, have you ever noticed how throughout the Old Testament, the kingdom blessings that Jesus brings, they're they're often equated with delicacies. It's, It's wine, it's milk, it's honey. These tasty things. One of my um, favorite movies of all time is this little film called Big Night. It's, um, anybody ever see Big Night? Just as I expected. <laughs> no one's ever said yes in, like, conversations whenever I ask. No one's, my wife, did you raise your hand? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's about these two brothers. They're from Italy, and um, they're opening a, a restaurant in New Jersey, an Italian restaurant, of course. And the, the, the younger brother, his name is Segundo, he's... He's the businessman in this, in this partnership. He longs for success. You see, uh, Primo, he's the older brother. He's the chef, and he's all about food. He's a purist. He's an artist when it comes to Italian cuisine. There's this scene where Primo says these words. He says, to eat good food is to be close to God. You see, to him, eating delicious food is this otherworldly experience. It's, it, he believes that it brings him closer to what's most important. It brings him closer to what's bigger than him, to God himself. And perhaps there's, there's something true about this. After all, I do believe this at least, that good food is meant to point us to a good God who made it and gave it to us, right? Good food is meant to cause us to worship God. <laughs> if the heavens declare the glory of God, then so does that medium rare steak that also declares the glory of God unless you're a vegetarian then perhaps it doesn't at least not to you but I I think it's the opposite truth that God reminds us of here and elsewhere again and again you see to eat good food is to be close to God maybe yeah but here here's what the Bible implies to be close to God is to eat good food you see God's presence His reign, it means abundance. It means feasting. It means delicious food for all his people. So that to know Jesus, to be close to Jesus, is to be filled. It's to drink deep of his spirit. It's to taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, with this simple, miraculous act, Jesus, he he removes this made-up ritual that, that says that coming to God means working to clean yourself off first, Get yourself clean and then come to God. He says, no, coming to God means drinking down the goodness that that he provides to you by grace, unearned, received by faith. That cleansing water in, in those vessels, it was unnecessary. Jesus proves it. We need wine at this party more than we need that water. 
It's, it's useless. It never cleansed anyone anyway. It's true, we do need to be cleaned. There's no doubt, we are impure before God. But, but Jesus is here, and, and he cleanses us, and he, he doesn't do it with rituals and with water. He does it with his own blood. He pours out himself, empties his veins in order to clean us so that we can be acceptable and received and loved and honored by God. That, that's the other reality that this wine is really meant to point us to here. It's not just the abundance and joy that wine means. It also points us to the blood of Jesus. Listen, listen to what John, the same author, says in, um, in 1 John 1. He says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Later, in in the book of Revelation, same author again, it's John, in the book of Revelation, he says, he talks about this vision where he sees these people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Washed in the blood of Jesus. So as we sit here today, cleansing rituals, we don't need them. The things that we do, let's bring it a little closer to home, the things that we do to clean ourselves up and make ourselves better before God are useless. Because by his death, by his death on the cross, Jesus cleanses us from all impurity, from all sin. So as he sat there at this feast, he's thinking about that. There's no doubt in my mind about it. Look, he obviously had not been crucified yet. And it was going to be some time before his death would actually come. But that's, in fact, why he tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. Remember those words, John 2, 4? My hour has not yet come, he says to her. What does that mean? Throughout the book of John, he says this multiple times, and every time he says it, he's talking about, he's referring to his future death. The hour has not yet come, but it will come. And one day it did come, and he faced it, and he absorbed death, and he spilled his blood for us. And with with this sign here at this wedding, he's announcing something better than water, better than ritual, better than our silly scrambling to tidy ourselves up. He points to something that brings true, permanent cleansing and blessing. We're going to take the Lord's Supper later. This, In fact, a, a ritual, a, a ceremonial meal that is packed with meaning. It's not useless. It's important. It's, it's given to us as a gift by Jesus. We just baptized some people recently at Maranatha, also a ritual of sorts, and something that in and of itself, the water itself was not somehow holy, and yet it was important, given to us by Jesus. Why do those elements matter? Why does the bread and the cup matter? Why does the water, the baptismal water matter? Only because it points to something else beyond itself. Only because it points to true cleansing. The baptismal waters point to that true cleansing that Jesus brings us. The bread and the cup, we're going we're gonna to take part in here. They point us to a better feast that we're about to talk about. It, it's no coincidence that, that here we have these vessels made for, for holding this purifying water, and now they're filled to the brim with wine. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Jesus doesn't show up with just a bottle, right, to share. He shows up with 120, 180 gallons it's this dual symbol, it's abundance, it's deliciousness, it's, it's gladness of heart on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, it's cleansing by the blood of Christ. Both things that we need so deeply. We need joy. 
We need cleansing. Jesus says, I am here and my ministry is all about this. Providing both of those things. He glorifies himself by replacing ritual with real blessing. And blessing that we can taste, that we can experience. And, and, he, and he gives us real purity. Not temporary, fake, I feel better kind of purity. But the kind of purity that makes us acceptable to God. And that, and that brings us to the, to the last thing here. The last way that Jesus displays his glory. Jesus welcomes us into marriage. <laughs> He welcomes us into marriage. You know, in, a, in the very next chapter of John, um, John chapter 3, there's a reference to Jesus where he is called the bridegroom. You familiar with this? John the Baptist actually says, there's the bridegroom. I'm not the important one here. He is. Jesus is the husband to his church, the husband to his people. And he performs this miracle to show himself to be just that perfect groom, the dream husband. He provides everything for the feast. While the actual groom, he failed miserably. He hadn't planned adequately. We could say, at least he would have been judged this way, that he hadn't loved his guests well enough. He hadn't loved his bride well enough. Maybe he had tried, but it just wasn't enough. But here comes Jesus, this other groom, and and, and he plans for us, his bride. If you're, if you're a guy and you kind of feel strange a little bit about being called the bride of Christ, I, I feel that. I think I can understand that. It does feel a little awkward, but I think we've got to get over that. I think we've got to get beyond it because Jesus says to us, men and women, his people, and he says, you are my bride and I am your husband. And I think the more we kind of are willing to accept that and take that and kind of figure out what it means, the more we can enjoy relationship with him. Because he says, I'm going to provide everything for you. I'm going to love you perfectly, and you're going to be mine, and I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to break your trust. I've lost count. Honestly, I really have lost count of how many weddings I've been at this past year. Lots. But, but when you go to a wedding, do you ever find, if you're married, okay, and you go to a wedding, do you ever find yourself thinking about your wedding? Like remembering? Like sometimes it's just like, oh, I should have done this differently, you know? especially if you just recently got married, you're comparing. But maybe it's just you're just thinking about that time when you took those vows. The time when you stood before those people and you repeated those words and you promised to love your spouse forever until death parted you. Or maybe if you're single, do you ever find yourself when you go to a wedding thinking about a future potential wedding? I mean, in practical ways, like I would do that differently, or I would do this, or I would do that. But also just looking forward to perhaps the, 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 the privilege of standing before a community of people and before God and pledging love to someone who you know you can trust and who cares for you and who you care for. I think that as Jesus was sitting there at that feast, there's no way that he could have been there and not have been thinking about his own wedding. There's no way. He is the groom. He's the one who plans. He's the one that provides. He doesn't leave anything for the last minute. So even as he's sitting there at this wedding, he's thinking. Even as he lived and he healed and he taught, he's thinking about his bride. He's thinking about what he's going to do to win us. He's thinking about how he's going to provide for us, how he's going to care for us forever. My hour has not yet come, he says which shows us that he's thinking about that hour when it would come, when that wedding would actually take place. And this idea of a feast, that had a special importance for Jesus. 
Because you see, Jesus' mission, it culminates in a wedding feast. Look at, look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 9. This is a passage actually taken together, these two passages of one, one pastor, uh, Tim Keller. He says, Jesus' ministry began with a wedding feast and it ends with a wedding feast. They're like bookends. <laughs> look at what happens here in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In other words, bank on them. This is solid rock. You can believe this. The words of God. There will be a wedding feast and blessed are those who are invited to it. Who have a place at that table. History culminates in this party. Jesus and his friends celebrating their union with him. Faith in him actually translates to a place at this table sitting with him. And this eternal covenant, unbreakable relationship with Christ forever. That's the feast that awaits all who have believed in Jesus and have thereby become his friends. Feast, I love sitting and eating. I've been at some of your houses recently feasting. Thanksgiving was was a great feast for us. But I've often found that feasts, especially family feasts, um, they sometimes involve some tension (laughs) around the table. There's some nervousness. There's some outstanding grievances. There are problems in our families, and they come to a head when we all sit around the table and say, let's give thanks. And also, it's fleeting, right? The food ends. The wine runs out. The the drinks are done. The the water's gone. Everyone heads home, and someone has to clean it up. And the guests don't always help. It's, it's fleeting, right? There's joy, but then it ends. It's mixed with some inconvenience, some difficulty. But Jesus says he's come to bring the kind of joy that, that it begins now, but it only increases into eternity. It doesn't end. There's no cleanup. There's no cleanup and go home. Remember what the master of ceremony said here. He said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you... We can say this to Jesus. You have kept the good wine until now. He gives us good wine now, and it only gets better. That means, practically speaking, that if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, it only gets better. It also means that your relationship with him is unbreakable. It can't be undone. It's based on a covenant that he's made with you, and he will not break it. I want to encourage you to find security in that. I want to encourage myself and you, to, as my brothers and sisters, to, to find comfort and peace in that. That Jesus' posture towards you is not unpredictable. Jesus' attitude towards you doesn't go up or down based on how you feel or how you're doing. There's a reason his love is called steadfast. His steadfast love endures forever. So I want to encourage you to find peace in that and to respond to that with love and to submit to him, in fact, as your husband. 
and follow him because he's trustworthy and because he's unchanging in his commitment to you. And he has promised to do you good. John says this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Many of us here are his disciples. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The whole point in seeing all this is so that we would believe in him. So in the midst of whatever challenges you're facing, whatever transitions you're facing in your, in your families, in your individual lives, transitions that you're facing as a church, questions and doubts about where things are headed for you, don't miss this. Believe in him in the midst of whatever you're experiencing. Maybe some of us are, are not believing in him yet. <laughs> we need to believe in him for the first time. And we can pray to him. We can say, Jesus, reveal yourself. Reveal your glory. I want to see it so that I'll believe too and have life and have joy and have my shame removed. So let's pray for that. Let's close. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this group of friends, your friends, blood-bought, your spouse, Lord, locally here in this church that you died for and that you are presently providing for, a people that you've removed shame from and, and you honor even now. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to find joy in their relationship with you, to find security, to find peace in that. We ask more than anything, Jesus, that you would open our eyes so that we might see your glory and, and that seeing your glory, we might believe in you and have life and receive grace upon grace. It's in your name we ask.